Well, good evening. My name is Jarrett Stevens. I'm one of the pastors here at Soul City Church, and uh, glad to have you join us here tonight. I'm not sure, does any, I mean, there's no way you remember what your first words were. Uh, you were probably maybe told, maybe your parents told you what your first words were. There's um, a lot of debate in our family about our son Elijah, our, first, our oldest, uh, what his first words were. I'm convinced they were dada. But Jeannie lets me know that's just baby noises he was making, you know, when he was uh, two months old. But I was convinced that those words were dad So there's a little bit of debate on that. Uh, my hunch is this. You have no really idea of what those first words were. And here's the other thing. This is really a, a happy thought to start the sermon with. Uh, you have no control over what your last words will be. Right? So, I know. Let's start there. Uh, so you can't really remember what your first words were. And you have really no control over what your last words will be. But there is something we can do with every word that comes in between. And so what we want to do for the course of this month is we want to look at what God's word might say to us to shape our words. We use a lot of words in a day. A lot of words. Average around 5,000 words a day. And so what we want to do is go to God's word and say, God, what would you have us know? What would you have us say? What would you have us not say? What would you have us say better? How is it, God, that we can actually use our words to be a gift and a blessing in our lives and in the world. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today, tonight, as well as the course of this month. Um, what we're going to be looking at is a passage of scripture from um, a confession of sorts from King David, this warrior poet king. We're going to dive into how he used his words to bring ownership to his life. And I want to let you know from the onset, we're going to do some grown-up talk. Tonight, we're going to take care of some business tonight, and we're going to use the life of David and another passage in the Bible to help inform how you and I can begin to use words of ownership when it comes to our relationship with God. Because there are words that we use in our life that have tremendous power, and you may not even realize it. There, there are words that exist in your day-to-day life that have tremendous power. In fact, so much power they can actually shape, even change your life. And you may not even realize that when they're spoken, they may not feel that way. When they're on the paper, they may not look that way. But there are a few words that literally can change your life. And there are words that we use here in Chicago that are totally specific to us that have a direct effect on our lives that the rest of the world has no idea about. Words that are very unique to us and have a very real meaning. Uh, Lake effect snow. (laughs) <laughs> that we all fear it, uh, but that's a very kind of unique sort of Midwest Chicago thing. Wind chill is another thing. When I moved here, like the temperature is this, but with the wind chill factor, it's this. What is the wind chill factor? I had no idea. When I grew up in San Francisco, we didn't have wind chill factors. We just chilled. We didn't have. We didn't have to worry about any of that kind of stuff, right? There are words specific to our city. You, uh, uh, if you hear the words, there's delays on the red line today, which you hear every day. Uh, it's going to mean maybe you're late for school, you're late for work. That has a direct effect just hearing those words. There's words we long to hear in this city that we will never hear. Cubs win. Cubs win. Cubs win. Those are words our hearts long to hear that we just need to settle with God. We're not going to hear until eternity. Right? There's words that are uttered to us that have direct effect on our lives that none of us know what they mean. No one outside of Chicago knows what it means. Casimir Pulaski Day. We don't know what that really means, but for some of us, it's a day off of work, so we thank God for Casimir Pulaski, right? There are words that are uttered that have direct effect on our lives and can shape the direction, trajectory of our lives. Uh, For many of you, you've heard the word said to you, 
you got the job, or you're hired. And that opened up a whole new chapter in your life, a whole new maybe direction in your life. Many of you who are here at Soul City Church have said the words at some point, I'm moving to Chicago. I'm moving to Chicago for work, for school, for a relationship. And so you left family, things that are familiar, friends, and you moved to this great city. And that's a new chapter in your life. Those words, I'm moving to Chicago, have had an effect on some of our lives, haven't they? Some of you have said the words, I do. And those two small words, you got all dressed up, invited everyone you knew just to hear you say those two words. And those words open up a whole new chapter, a whole new direction in our lives. Some of us in this room have heard the words, we're getting a divorce. And you heard either your parents speak those words to you when you were a child, or you stood across from someone who you stood across from years before who said those words, I do. And now they're saying, we're getting a divorce. Those words have direct effect and power on our lives, don't they? I remember the first time that Jeannie and I said, I love you to each other. Those three words, those powerful words, I love you. We dated long distance. We met here in Chicago, but I grew up in San Francisco. And so uh, we dated long distance. We started our relationship long distance. Almost a year and a half we dated long distance. And I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but that was at a time before email. Okay? That was at a time like when cell phones were really huge and really expensive, and you had to crank them up to make a call, and it was not an option for us. So we depended on long-distance phone calls. Back when you had to pay for long-distance, we depended on those. We wrote a ton. Uh, Jeannie wrote a ton of letters. <laughs> We're recording this, so I just want to make sure I use my words well. Jeannie wrote a ton of letters, and we would try and make trips whenever we could save up enough money to see each other. But I knew that uh, in the course of our dating, we'd been dating for many months, and I knew that Jeannie had never told another boy that she loved them. The only man she'd ever said it to was her dad. And so I knew those were very powerful words for her. And so one night we were hanging up on the phone, our corded phones, and, uh, you know, saying goodnight. It was like a Tuesday, nothing spectacular about the day. And so we were trying to figure out who's going to call each other next. So I'll call you tomorrow. No, you call me. Are you going to call me after school? No, I'll call you after work. So we were kind of working out those very important details. And so, again, every, nothing romantic or significant. And so she's hanging up. We're hanging up. And she goes, okay, well, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Okay, okay, I love you. I was like, what? I got you. You know, like, <laughs> this is it. <laughs> like, and it was, I knew that was a really powerful moment for her and for me. The problem I didn't really share in that moment with her was, I had been saying the words I love you to every girl I dated, every girl I was interested, any girl who pretty much would walk by me at summer camp since the third grade. I had overused those words, right? But to her, they had great power, great meaning, great significance, and that opened up a new chapter for our lives. Those words, we had no idea what those words would lead to. I remember when our son Elijah was born. And we didn't know if he was going to be a boy or a girl. You know, we kind of kept that a secret. We wanted to be surprised. And I remember being right there and the doctor saying, it's a boy. And for me to be able to look up and say to you, it's a boy, it's a boy, it's a boy. And to realize now, this, is, this changes the trajectory of our lives. Those words, it's a boy. I have a son now. And what does that mean? And when we found out we were having Gigi, that our son would have a sister. You know, those words, it's a girl, it's a boy. Huge, huge impact on our lives. I remember the first times that we said the words, we're starting a church. 
We'd never started a church before. We didn't, we didn't know what to say after that sentence, but we, we knew that God had led us in obedience to start this church. We knew that God had led our lives to the point where the next step for us in obedience to him was to start this church. And I remember telling people for the very first time, we're going to start a church. We feel like God's leading us to start a church. And these last few years have, I mean, unbelievably, almost immeasurably changed our lives. Just from those simple words, we're starting a church. You get an idea of how words may not seem all that important on the surface or that significant in the moment, can have tremendous power and effect on our lives in very real ways. There are some words that literally can change your life. There are even fewer words that actually have the power to change eternity. There are a few words that we have in our vocabulary that can literally change the landscape of eternity. And what we're going to look at tonight is three words that not only can change the landscape of eternity, not only affect our lives in this life, but the words that we can say in this life actually live beyond our life into eternity. Not only that, but the words we're going to look at tonight actually move God. Now we know, we teach around here, God is not a genie in a bottle. We just sort of tell him what we want and he gives it to us. God loves us way too much for that. But what we're going to look at tonight is words when we say with a true, with an honest, with a sincere, with an authentic heart, when we say these three words, God will always respond. He has yet to leave anyone hanging who says these three words. The words we want to look at tonight are the words, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. It doesn't matter what you've done, how far you've gone, who it was with, how long it's been. When you come to God with an honest, open, and broken heart and say those three words, God, forgive me. He moves. He moves. Those words move the heart of God. God may not always give you what you want when you ask him because he loves you too much for that. God may not always allow or arrange your circumstances to go the way that you want them to. Ever felt that before? God may not give you the answer to the question you think you need to be asking. God may not move in the timing that you like or that you want. But when we come to God and say those words, God, forgive me, he moves every time. Every time. In fact, if you would, I want you to grab a blue Bible. We're going to look at where we see just one of the places this is promised in the scriptures. So if you want to grab a blue Bible right in front of you, you brought your own, please open that. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, we say this every time, this is your Bible. We are in the process of having to reorder Bibles because so many people have taken home a Bible and kept this Bible as their own. So if you don't own a Bible, this is your Bible. You get to steal a Bible from church. That's a double whammy. You're going to want to definitely do that. Open to page 1129, 1 John 1. 1 John 1. It's on the blue Bibles. It's page 1129. We're going to look at this promise of how God moves when we say the words, God, forgive me. 
John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, this one who was so close to and so known by Jesus, is saying now these words years after Jesus has ascended into heaven, the church has begun. He is now speaking truth that he knows to be true because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says these words in 1 John 1, 8. Let's look at this. And this kind of levels the playing field. This, this first verse, 1 John 1, 8, is for any one of us who comes into this room tonight or who's watching online who thinks, you know, the church is for people who have it all figured out. You know, for any one of you who thinks that, like, if they only knew what was going on in my life, like, these folks are way ahead of me. I'm kind of the, like, one bringing up the caboose, right? You know, listen, this is what John says. I want you to hear this from the heart of God. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In other words, if you think that you are without sin or you don't need to come to God with your sin, you're fooling yourself. You're kidding yourself. All of us, John levels the playing field. All of us wrestle with, struggle with, are plagued by sin. Every single one of us. So the playing field is leveled, okay? And we're going to look actually in a second, a touchback from that concept of where John got that idea from about deceiving ourselves, thinking that we're without sin. But look at the promise in 1 John 1, 9. That if we confess our sins, if we say those words, God, forgive me, what does it say? I want us to read this out loud. Let's start with if we confess. Can you read this with me? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What this verse is saying is this. If we say the words, God, forgive me, God will move. He is just. That means he has a standard. There's a holy standard that God keeps. A standard that has actually been met by Jesus. He's faithful. He's good. He keeps his promise. He will forgive you. You have three words that you can count on will move the heart of God. God, forgive me. This is one of those promises that's worth circling in the Bible, even if it's not your copy of the Bible. Someone else will come along and read it. This is one of those times when you don't know how to pray or you're doubting God's goodness or faithfulness in your life. This is a verse to come back to. First John 1, 9. If we, if you say the words, God forgive me, he is faithful, he's just, he will forgive you. He will. These are very powerful words. God forgive me. Some of the most powerful words we have in our vocabulary. And interestingly enough, at least about myself, maybe this is true of you as well, here we have access to these words that we know and we can count by promises after promise after promise from the scriptures that God will move on our behalf, not because of us, but because of himself when we come to him and say, God forgive me. We have some of the most powerful words in our vocabulary and yet so often I fail to use them. I fail to speak them. And not only do I not say those words, God forgive me, I find myself settling for all kinds of other words. I find myself filling in the blank in front of my sin with all kinds of other things other than, God, forgive me. We say things like, I got this. I got no need to get involved. I I can handle this. When it comes to my sin, God, I got this. I've gotten this far. I can keep going. I've got this. We say things like, it's not so bad. Or at the very least, it's not as bad as him or her. It's not as bad as my parents. 
it's not as bad as I used to be. And so instead of just saying the words, we come up with all kinds of other words. We say things like, I'm only human. What do you expect, God? You gave me these desires. This is kind of your fault, really. I'm only human, God. We say things like, you know, everyone struggles with this. Everyone struggles with this. God must grade on the curve because everyone I know is messing up in this area. So what's the big deal if I do? We have in our vocabulary the most powerful words we can say that will move the heart of God. And yet we settle for and say so many other things. And my concern for myself and my life is that I have learned to talk my way around sin so well. You know where I've learned to do it? I've learned to do it in the church. I've learned to use all kinds of other language that gets me around taking ownership for my sin. I've learned how to sort of uh, pretty it up so it doesn't sound as ugly and bad and destructive and harmful as it actually is. And my concern for myself and my concern honestly for you is that we have become so smart that we can actually talk around our sin and yet we're so foolish to actually believe that'll work. We have learned how to be so smart that we can talk our way around our sin and yet at the same time are so foolish to actually believe that that works and will lead to life. All we're doing is just pushing it aside, pushing it aside, offloading it, offloading it. But it doesn't go away until it's brought to God with those three words, God, forgive me. We have to take ownership for our sin. I have to take responsibility for my sin. And only when I take ownership can I receive the forgiveness that God offers so freely. Because ownership always precedes forgiveness. God can't forgive what you don't bring to the table. You have this thing in your life, you just gotta work it out. This is the crazy thing. God will move when you say the words, but he won't move until you do. He will move when you say the words, God, forgive me, but he will not move until you do. His love will be present. His love will be active. His love will be strong, but his forgiveness is always preceded by your ownership, my ownership of my sin. I have to come to him and say, God, forgive me. God, will you forgive me? And I want us to look at a story and a picture of of how that happens in the scriptures. There are many. We're going to look at just one for the next few minutes. And it comes from the life of David. And so if you would, would you open to Psalm 32? If you have the blue Bible, it's page 514. Psalm 32. Let me give you context while you're flipping. It's like pretty much right in the middle of the Bible. Let me give you a little context as to what we're looking at here with David. This is a prayer of confession from King David. There are seven prayers that are uh, recorded from David about the specific incident that happens that precedes these prayers. There's seven of them written throughout the Psalms. This is one of them. The event, simply you have to kind of rewind back in his life to get to understanding where these words come from. See, David was uh, the second king of Israel. Before him was King Saul. Before King Saul, the people of Israel demanded and asked of God to give them a king. They looked around at all the other nations and they saw that all the other nations of the world had kings and they wanted a king. So they said, God, give us a king. God said, no, I am your king. They said, it's not good enough. Give us a human king. God said, okay. And so he gave him King Saul. Started out good, went really bad. In fact, he went crazy. 
And so as he's starting to fall apart, God is raising up David. Where does David come from? Obscurity. He's a shepherd boy. There's nothing dynamic about David except his love for God. And so David rises through the story of David and Goliath. He becomes a national hero. And he rises in the ranks and he is anointed by God and appointed eventually as king over Israel. And he rules well. In fact, the Bible says about King David that he's a man after God's own heart. That He loved God well. And yet he's not an ordinary king. He's this king, he's this warrior, but he's also a poet. He's probably, like, probably had a beard. You know, he's probably one of those, you know what I mean? He's a musician, you know what I mean? And so he is this like wonderful anomaly, this, this warrior king, but he's also a poet musician whose heart is tender towards God. And so the, the more and more things get better and better throughout the kingdom, The more and more comfortable David gets, the more and more sin creeps into his life. What eventually happens is he commits adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. The problem was both of them were married. And when David realizes what he's done is clearly wrong, he knew all along, but when he's kind of hit with the guilt of sleeping with another man's wife, he has an opportunity to come to God and say those three words, God, forgive me. But he doesn't. Like every one of us, he goes into management mode. I'm going to manage my sin. He goes to extreme measures. He has her husband, Uriah, killed. A war hero, Bathsheba's husband. He sets up, exhausts a lot of energy to have her husband eventually murdered to cover his tracks. This is one of those stories in the Bible where we look to these heroes of the faith. This is a central character of the Bible. Central character And I want you to take a little bit of encouragement. These people in the Bible were way more messed up than you and I. So just be encouraged by that. And there's a little bit more that God wants to teach us than that. So David finally is confronted with his sin. And he calls out to God and he says these words from Psalm 32. Let's look at how David finally takes ownership and responsibility for his sin. David says, reflecting on his life and on his God. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Now, keep in mind, this is well before Jesus, well before language of our sin being covered by the blood of Jesus. And here David is saying, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed, lucky are those, special are those whose sin the Lord does not count against them. Now look at these words and remember 1 John 1, 8. And in whose spirit there is no what? Deceit. Who are honest and open with their sin. Who aren't trying to manage it or settle for other words and calling it exactly what it is. Now David goes into his own story. When I kept silent, when I refused to say the words, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning All day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. We're just going to pause for a second and see if our heart doesn't resonate with that a little bit. Have you ever felt that way before? So stuck in your sin, so stuck in a broken relationship, so stuck in in the destructive habit of sin that you felt the heavy hand of God in your life. Has anyone ever felt that in this room? Felt like, just oh, no matter where you turn, no matter what you try and do, it's just on you. And God is there saying, I love you, but my love is strong and heavy. And I'm not leaving you. Ever felt that before? 
David says, oh, I felt the heavy hand of God on me. My strength was sapped. I was just sapped as in the heat of the summer. Then, and this is the turnaround moment for David, and maybe for you tonight will be your turnaround moment. Then, then I acknowledged my sin to you. I said the words. I did not, look at the words there, cover up my iniquity. Remember, that's what he tried to do by having Bathsheba's husband murdered. He tried to cover up his sin. He says, no, no, no. I said the words to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. God, forgive me. And look at what God does. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. You did it. You forgave the guilt of my sin. You moved. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. In other words, while this offer is still good, let everyone, let everyone who sins, which is all of us, call out to God and find this kind of forgiveness. Surely the rising of mighty waters will not reach them because you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with, look at this language, surround me with songs of deliverance. David, the warrior, poet, king, the musician, says, God, you will sing over me songs of deliverance, of freedom, of forgiveness. Your music, your melody, God, will pierce my soul and will give me a new song in my heart. You see how powerful it is when we finally come to God and say the words, take responsibility, have ownership over our sin, and call it what it is. There is a power that comes. There is a power that comes when you take responsibility for your depravity. When you try to no longer be so smart to talk your way around sin and so foolish to think that strategy actually works, but you say, like David said, I then, I acknowledged my transgressions. I confessed my sin and God moved. God moves. There is something powerful that happens when we say the words. I saw a picture of this, a beautiful, beautiful picture of this, this last week. Our daughter, Gigi, is is as emotional as they come. She's three years old, and we've said since she was six months old that she's our little chunky diva. She is just our diva, and she just knows what's up. And so it's not a question with Gigi of if she's feeling something. It's which emotion in that moment is she feeling. Or there may be several, actually, in that moment. And so, which I love, her highs are really high, her lows are really low, and she is just so emotionally present with everything she's feeling, okay? So this last week, uh, Jeannie and her mom and Gigi went to the Disney Princess on Ice show, which I'm sure many of you went to. And uh, (laughs) oddly enough, Elijah and I didn't go. Uh, We stayed at home and built Legos, but they were there. And, you know, this is, I mean, she's just in heaven. She just loves all things princess. And so she was just in heaven, loving it. And then when they were leaving and coming out to the car, Elijah and I were picking them up. Uh, You know how these things go if you've ever been to anything like this. The walk out the door, there's like 500 things that they're trying to sell you, all for like $500 each. You just can't, with a kid, you can't make it out of there without your kid going, I want that, I want that, I want that. And so sure enough, Gigi wanted something. I don't even know what it was. It was some tiara or some sort of 
scepter or some sort of thing. I don't know. It wasn't a lightsaber. So I was out of that one. I couldn't have helped. So she wanted it so bad. She didn't even know what it was. And so she started saying, mom, 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 I really want it. And you know, Jeannie's like, no, Gigi, we're not going to do that. We're, that's not what we're going to do. Try to, you know. And then it started escalating. Oh, I really want that thing that I never knew about before this moment. I need it. You know, and she's now bawling and crying. You know, she's starting to really build up. And Jeannie's having to be firm with her. Gigi, no, we are not going to get that. It's not going to happen. And so now it goes to the next level to where it's, you know, like starting to throw a fit. You know, our kid was that kid in that moment. And so Jeannie had to be very firm. said, Gigi. That is not how we do it in our family. We're not just going to buy that because we want it. And the more you keep doing this, the more you are actually disobeying me right now. And it hurts my heart that you would do that. And we have, we have a couple phrases in our family. One of them is, that hurts my heart. That hurts my heart that you disobey. Not that you broke the rules, but you, that hurts my heart that you would disobey in this moment. Another one we have in our family is, that's not how we do it in our family. And so, you know, you like, let all those other crazy families do that. That's not how we do it in our family, Gigi. And so I'm sure that's going to give our kids issues later in life. And so, you know, the issue kind of resolves itself a little bit. And, you know, they're walking out and Gigi's crying and she's sad. And Jeannie's holding her to walk her out to the car. And she says, Mama, they're walking literally across the street. I'm so sad. You know, it's kind of like, of course, I know, we were just there, I know, I remember. She's like, Mom, I'm so sad. So Jeannie goes, baby, what are you sad about? This is what my daughter, three-year-old daughter says. Mama, I'm so sad I hurt your heart. I'm so sad I disobeyed you. You know, at that point, Jeannie's like, ah. Jeannie's trying, like, okay, that's good. You know, well done. And here's this little three-year-old moment who's literally with tears in her eyes going, I'm so sorry I hurt your heart. I'm so sorry I disobeyed you. And genuine emotion over breaking the heart and disobeying her parent. You know, I look at our little three-year-old and I wonder, God, why don't I have that kind of heart towards you about my sin? Why aren't I driven to tears? at the weight and the totality of my depravity and call out to you, God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for the hundred different ways I broke your heart today. I'm so sorry I disobeyed you and I'm so sad over my sin. Why is it that I can exhaust so much energy and waste so many words and so many months of my life ignoring my sin? Wrapping it in all kinds of other words instead of just calling it what it is. God, I have sinned. God, forgive me. And experiencing the forgiveness that comes from God. The grace that comes from God. Because grace can never be grace until sin is sin. Grace can't be grace until your sin is sin. It doesn't... It doesn't Makes sense. God's goodness, God's greatness, all those things are always at play. But grace finds us when we finally show up with our sin. Grace is fully experienced for what it is when we fully own our sin. And we call it what it is. And we say to God, I'm so sorry I've hurt your heart. I'm so sorry I've disobeyed you. God, forgive me. No more excuses. No more wrapping it in other words. God, I have sinned. God, 
forgive me. When you're talking about those girls in your small group, you're not just processing, you're gossiping. Call it what it is. Call it what it is. It's not just that you're messing up physically with your boyfriend or girlfriend. It's sexual sin, and it breaks the heart of God. He created you and your body and that person, his son, his daughter, for so much more than that. So don't say that you're struggling. Call it what it is. Because the longer you ignore it, and the more words you add to it, the less and less you will experience the fullness of God's grace. Call it what it is. Name it. It's not just a bad habit that you wrestle with. It's an addiction. And it's taken a hold of your heart. And it occupies your thoughts. And it's literally directing your life right now. Call it what it is. It's sin. It's an addiction. And God created you for more than that. It's not just a couple drinks with a coworker after work. It is on its way to being an affair. Call it what it is. Take responsibility for your sin so that you can experience the fullness and freedom of God's forgiveness. Jesus did not come and live his life with us and offer his life for us on the cross and be raised from God by God from the dead, to just be our personal trainer to help us live a better life. That's not why Jesus came, was to help you live a better life. He came not to be your personal trainer, but your Lord and Savior. And to not help you live a better life, but to give you life. And to give you freedom. And to offer you forgiveness and fullness. And if you want to experience that, then you show up to the table, and you call it what it is, and you own it. And you experience the power of God's forgiveness in your life. And I could go on and talk and talk more and more about this. We could keep opening up God's word and looking at this. But what I'd rather do, instead of us talking anymore about our sin and talking anymore about God's forgiveness, we're going to spend some time talking to God. We're going to spend some time talking with God. And so I'm going to invite the band to come up right now. We're going to spend a few moments reflecting and on this promise that is true from God's word, that when we come to him with those words, God forgive me, he will move. When we take ownership, that's the first step in us actually experiencing the freedom and fullness of God's forgiveness in our lives. And the reason we brought the cross in here tonight, we don't do that every week. It's usually over in our prayer hall space, but we wanted to bring that in here as a living reminder, as a, a, literally a symbol for us to be reminded of three words that were spoken on our behalf so that we could even come to God and say, God, forgive me. You see, on that cross, the very real cross where Jesus died, that very real moment where Jesus stood in the gap for a God who is just and said, no, I will take the place for their sin. No, I will be the one to pay the price for their sin. Jesus said three words on that cross. He said, it is finished. I have done what I came to do. Freedom and forgiveness are now fully available through me. It is finished. And because Jesus said those three words on our behalf, we 
actually can come to God and say, God, forgive me. And here's my sin in brutal, honest detail. And God, here's all the things that I'd love to write off as something less than sin, but I'm going to call it what it is. It's sin, and it breaks your heart, God, and it breaks our relationship with each other. And I can exhaust my life trying to manage my sin, or I can actually experience the life you have for me by coming to you with my sin. And so what we want to do over these next few moments is just that, is come to God with our sin. Now call it what it is and experience his forgiveness. A friend of mine says that the real you know, mark of spiritual transformation and spiritual growth is not just that you're sinning less. I think that's what many people strive for. That's a great, great thing to strive for. You know, this friend of mine says it's not just that we sin less, but that we lessen the gap between our sin and our confession. It's not just that we sin less, but we lessen the gap between our sin and calling it what it is and bringing it to God. And as we continue to grow as a church, God is inviting us to shorten that gap, to, to, to know that we are going to sin. If we think we're without sin, we are deceiving ourselves. So when we do sin, as quick as possible, as completely as possible, we say, God, forgive me, forgive me. And when we do, when we do, this church then becomes a wounded healer to the city. Not hypocrites who are afraid to face their own mess, their own sin, but wounded healers who have the opportunity to speak into the pain and brokenness of this city because we are dealing with the pain and brokenness and sin in our own lives and seeing God forgive us and free us and offer us life to the fullest like he promised. This is love. God demonstrated for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And for some of us tonight, you need to literally, and I mean literally, come up to this cross and get on your knees and call it what it is and ask for God's forgiveness. Name it. For some of you, it's going to be, you've done this before, you know, it's going to be another time to the cross to say, oh God, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Nothing magical or special about the cross doesn't forgive you anymore. It's just a reminder to us of the very real price that was paid and the very real words that were uttered. It is finished. For some of us tonight, what it means is this. For the very first time in your life, you're actually going to come to the cross of Jesus. And you're going to trade in your sin and the totality of your depravity. And you're going to say to God, I can't do it anymore. I never could. And if it's true that you actually can forgive me of this and not only be my Savior today, but my Lord every day for the rest of my life, then I'm in. I want you as Savior and Lord of my life, the one who saves me this moment and leads me every moment beyond. And for some of us tonight, it's time. It's time. It's time that you come before the cross and say, Jesus, I can't believe this deal, that I offer you all of my sin and you offer me life. And some of us are experiencing that for the first time tonight. So I want to pray for us, for you, and then we're going to come and experience that right now. And I mean it. Some of you, you're already sweating a little bit. The thought of having to get up and walk across this row, that's a small inconvenience considering the cross that you're coming to kneel before and the price that was paid for you and I. 
So I'd encourage you not to miss this moment as we worship and center our hearts around God. But first, let's pray right now. Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you that we don't have to go around our sin, that we don't have to go through anyone else other than you, that we have direct access to the Father through you, and that you are the one who intersects us in our sin and says, I can forgive you, and I will forgive you, and you will be forgiven. I pray that we don't miss this moment in the million moments we have in our lives to lessen the gap and confess our sin to you. We want as best we can and with as much specificity as we can, we don't want to carry this stuff anymore. We don't want to talk around this sin anymore. We want to bring it to you. And God, as a church, we cry out these three words to you. God, forgive us. God, forgive me. And I know, God, I know because I've seen you do it in my life and I've seen it throughout your word. You will move. And so God, move tonight, we pray. As we take a step closer to you, God, we expect to experience you in this moment. In your name and by your blood, Jesus, we pray.